Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and we have a really fun and unique and special episode for you today because we are recording live at Anesthesiology 2019. That's the ASA annual meeting, and I am here with the one and only Dr. Jeffrey Cooper, who I'm sure folks will know is a professor of anesthesiology at the Harvard Medical School based at MGH. He's also the co-founder of the Anesthesia Patient Safety Foundation and the founder for the Center for Medical Simulation at Harvard. He's done amazing work and gave uh, one of the big talks here at ASA yesterday, and it was on communication, and the communication uh, specifically in the dyad between the surgeon and the anesthesiologist, and very graciously agreed to sit down with me today to talk a little more about that so that folks who didn't have an opportunity to go to the talk can learn from what he had to say. Dr. Cooper, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, we are here, as I said, uh, at ASA in a sunny and um, quite muggy Orlando, Florida, uh, but it's fun to be here, and uh, as always, we get to meet a lot of fun uh, folks and learn a lot. So let's jump in, and Dr. Cooper, let me tell you, let me ask you, I mean, uh, to tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you get where you are? You've done a lot, accomplished a huge amount. You've gotten to the point where, you know, you're invited to give one of the big talks at the huge annual meeting. So uh, folks out there, you know, maybe thinking, I would love one day to be, to get that kind of an invitation. So what do you recommend? How do people, what have you done? What do you, uh, have you kind of got where you are? Yeah, that's a big, big, long story. Yeah. Uh, so uh, for one thing, people really know, they get confused. I am not an anesthesiologist. I'm not a physician. I'm a biomedical engineer. Okay. Uh, the, who landed at the Massachusetts General Hospital in what was then called the Department of Anesthesia in 1972. Uh, and I came to join, I joined the Anesthesia Bioengineering Unit, and I was brought in for reasons that are very confusing, but uh, wasn't even clear what I was supposed to do. I was working with this bioengineering unit. Uh, and as I talked about in the lecture, one of the things that was really fortunate, and I think is a great lesson for anybody who wants to be a leader of, of anything, is the kind of group I landed with and the leader, uh, Dr. Richard J. Kitts, who was the chair of the department. He passed away a few years ago. Uh, I just landed with this group of incredibly collegial uh, mentors, people who were, they were my peers, they were my age, uh, but they were just so helpful and generative uh, and smart, really smart people, all smarter than I am. And I really got lucky because one of the people in there was Rennie Meyer, an anesthesiologist doing his third year as a fellowship. 
Uh, and I spent a lot of time in the OR with Rennie. And by the way, as a biomedical engineer in my training, I had enough uh, training in my, my courses to be dangerous, you know, anatomy, physiology, animal surgery. So I knew just enough. Just enough. Uh, and actually, when I was doing my graduate work at the University of Missouri, we actually killed an experimental animal with uh, halothane overdose. And I didn't realize how that maybe that impacted my career in some way. That's right. uh, but I spent all this time with Rennie in the OR, seeing the OR and anesthesia through his eyes. And he was incredibly, is still incredibly a perceptive, insightful person. And I saw through this lens of what goes wrong. And in those early years, our bioengineering group started to uh, look at building a new anesthesia machine. Actually, we developed the first microprocessor-based anesthesia machine. It's published in Anesthesiology in uh, either December or November 1978. Oh, that's great. Uh, and that was our original work. We wanted to, to develop this uh, new piece of equipment. And the story, by the way, of how this all happened, how I got where I am, is written in a memoir, in a book, uh, This Is No Humbug which is the reminiscences, the history of the MGH anesthesia department. You can get it on Kindle. I got it on the Kindle. It's out of print. You can buy it, I think, but uh, I think it's two ninety nine on Kindle for people who want to see the story uh, of how all, all these pieces fit together, the biomedical engineering and anesthesia and patient safety. Oh, very cool. This uh, is No Humbug. Okay, this is so No Humbug can, is the name of the book. Right, this is No Humbug. To that on yeah, the show notes. yeah, and uh, – and, and so I, you know, I described the history in there. And so we, so it, it was this serendipity where we were thinking about this developing a new anesthesia machine. And I was at a Halloween party carving pumpkins, and I sat next to this guy who was organizing a NATO-sponsored conference in 1974 on human factors in healthcare. And I was chatting with him and telling him what I was doing. He said, well, it's a great story. Why don't you come and give a lecture? So I gave a lecture at this conference in Portugal. And my chair, again, to his credit, he didn't really know what this stuff was about. He somehow found the funding for me to go uh, to Lisbon to this meeting. And I gave this talk on the anesthesia machine, an accident waiting to happen. A guy comes up at the end, and he says, oh, he works for American Institutes for Research. He said, you have a great laboratory. And you could use the critical incident technique, which I'd never heard of. And one thing led to another, and we did these studies of human error looking for equipment-related problems. Where, and we interviewed people, um, anesthesiologists, residents, nurse anesthetists, started out at MGH, but then it evolved to several other hospitals over the years. And, again, we had this curiosity about equipment, but people were telling us all the other stories of the kinds of errors, mistakes they made or observed. Mm-hmm. And we just followed that line of reasoning. We didn't home in on just the equipment, and that's how my career in patient safety started. And I listened to hundreds of hours of stories of anesthesia providers talking about their mistakes they had made or observed, and we put all that together and and kind of made visible what was then an unmentionable, the errors that were made, and eventually that got to be called patient safety. Fascinating. Um, well, that's great. I love that there's a, a story people can refer to, and as I said, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. So how did you get interested in the communication, uh, you know, specifically between surgeons and anesthesiologists? So, uh, so in 1985, in our department, we started our QA committee required in all hospitals in Massachusetts around then. You had to have some kind of QA committee. So I've been sitting on the Quality Assurance Committee in Anesthesia since 1985. Uh, again, as a non-clinician, you know, listening to these stories, being part of the really trying to understand what went wrong in, in all these events. And it's, it's been uh, – there's nobody even close to having served on it as long as I have. I'm sure. And so over the years, I, I got to listen to this, again, through the eyes of somebody who knew enough about the operating room and how things work, but not jaded, if you will, or biased by actually doing it myself. So yeah, I didn't have my own formed opinions, and I could – and I think one of the things as an engineer is I, I learned to be a good listener, and I, I don't – 
think I have the solutions and the answers to things. I, I just learn from other people. Uh, and over the years, and also from our interviews and critical incident studies and what's been learned about patient safety over the years, people came to understand communication is really at the heart of all adverse events just about. There's just so much about communication. But it's a very broad term. The talk I gave the other day on about the anesthesiologist surgeon dyad really comes from something a bit different in sitting in the, these meetings. And that was, I just got tired of hearing anesthesiologists diss surgeons. Mm. You know, it just, and I don't know what the specific straw was that broke the camel's back for me. It was one, somebody said, was one too many times I'd heard somebody say, oh, you know, those surgeons, they're never talking about, you never know how much blood they're going to leave. They never admit it. And, and, I, and, and anytime I would hear these conversations in the past, I'd say, well, so what do you think they think of you? Right. And, and so this idea started to develop for me about stereotypes. And, and again, to kind of step back uh, about the whole concept of patient safety, what I came to under, come to understand over the years of all the elements. And I talked about in the talk of all that's evolved over these decades of what's made patient safety happen. It's no one thing. It's one, I had did this um, uh, animation in PowerPoint of trying to push a big rock up a steep hill and how what you really need to do that is a lever and a fulcrum and that the fulcrum had to do with the research that was done and the malpractice crisis uh, costing a lot of money for anesthesiologists yeah. uh, and then public visibility from this ABC TV show in about 1983. That's the fulcrum. And then onto the lever we added the APSF newsletter and initiatives and projects and research and standards and all kinds of things that have been going on for years. And finally, the rock moved. Yeah. And that's what my talk was about, about how the rock moved, but you just got to pile a lot of stuff on. Yeah. And you can't feel too good about it, even when you, things have gotten so much better. And I can mention a little bit where some of that evidence is. Uh, but you can't stand still, because when you make things safer, the system is always going to make things tougher. They're going to make the rock bigger. Yep. And it gets bigger because it's safer, and people think, okay, we can do more patients, we can push you faster, we can do trickier procedures with sicker patients. Yep. So it got bigger, and you can't stop. You have to do more things. And then I described how the APSF has got all kinds of other initiatives, a dozen different priorities, and new strategies about using social media, uh, publishing the newsletter in different languages to reach the rest of the world, et cetera. But my point was there's just one more thing. And that I've just come to believe no matter how many systems you have, how much technology, oximetry, technometry, alarms, all that, it comes down to people. And at the root of all safety is about people, and particularly how we relate to each other. Yeah. And how we communicate, how much we trust each other. Do you have the other person's back? Do you feel comfortable speaking up? Do you want to save their butt? And when I heard these stereotypes, it's just like, you know, this is not healthy. We all have stereotypes about people. Yep. It's just not a healthy thing. And when anesthesiologists see surgeons through this negative lens, uh, sure, there's some truth to it. There's truth to stereotypes. That's where they come from. But it's not the way people predominantly are. So in the lecture, I talked about that. And in particular, uh, I think if people can go on the way, if I say to you, have you ever seen the there is a fracture I need to fix it 
You're shaking your head yes. Oh, you, you know what that is. Absolutely. Almost, I think, maybe every anesthesiologist has seen it. I didn't see it, by the way, till after I published the paper. A surgeon showed it to me and asked me to present to the surgeons at MGH. That's the only other time I presented this topic to anybody. Last was last year. And she showed the video, and that's where I had seen it. Okay. And I thought, this is really insulting to orthopedic surgeons. But, of course, everybody laughs. The surgeons didn't. Uh, and there's something funny about it. So I, in the talk which I may be online somewhere. I don't know. Maybe hopefully you'll be able to see it and you can put a link to it. I'm not sure. Uh, I took that animation and I shortened it. I found the software and so I subscribed and everything and shortened it so it's faster. And then I had worked with a vascular surgeon who was a vascular surgeon for 18 years and then anesthesiologist. I said, could you huh. write a script of the other side? Ah. So he, the, the other animation I did was called I'm Canceling Your Case. <laughs> All right, and the way surgeons view anesthesiologists. So I juxtaposed those two animations and then talked about the negative stereotypes that I described in the papers. I took some of those. And you asked where I got those from. Well, part of it was just from talking to anesthesiologists and surgeons over the years, and particularly as I was writing the article, working with surgeons and anesthesiologists and asking specifically, what are your stereotypes? So it was not a study. They were anecdotes. Uh, and one of my point, big points is people have not studied this. It's an absolute critical relationship. We have very little research about it. Uh, so then what's in there are anecdotes. But when I – just like when you read it, and I've shown that to other people, they all say right, spot on. Yeah. And that's what people said about the talk. Bingo. That You, know, you got it. Yep. And I got it because I talk to people and I listen. Yeah. That's where it comes from. So that's fa- fascinating. I love that you have this perspective, uh, like you said, that you are not an anesthesiologist or a surgeon. Yep. And so you maybe can listen a little with a little less bias than yes. someone who is one of those two specialties. And then also I will second uh, what you just said, which is that when I read, and we will put the uh, link to the paper in the show notes as well, uh, your descriptions of those stereotypes uh, just are spot on, spot on what we all kind of hear. And um, I think that that is uh, – a, it rings true. So people will read this, I think, and say, oh, yeah, that, that sounds right to me. Um, and I have not um, – I'm not sure that we can put a link to your talk. I think ASA may charge for, yeah, right. uh, for may that be. content. I don't know if it's behind the paywall or not. <laughs> yeah, but uh, certainly um, you know, people will, I think, understand what would have been in those, uh, yeah. those videos. Um, so great. So that's how you came to, put these, uh, to understand these stereotypes. Um, and then in your paper, you go on a little bit to talk about um, kind of what we can do uh, to try to address the stereotypes. Uh, and before we get to that, though, let me ask you, you know, Stereotypes, I think we can all agree, it's, it, it interferes with your ability to really get to know someone. It, each individual is different. A stereotype lumps them together. Um, do we have any, and I know you said there's not a lot of data, but do we have any uh, definitive way to say that the existence of these stereotypes is causing harm or decreasing patient safety? Uh, so I don't have empirical evidence as to, to what extent in malpractice cases and adverse events the these negative relationships. It's not just the stereotypes. It's the negative relationships that I'm speaking to. Right. And the stereotyping is part of that. So, yep. no, I don't have empirical evidence that they, uh, how many people die or are injured as a result of the negative stereotypes. I just have a lot of anecdotes. Yep. And I've heard the stories where clearly the lack of a good relationship got in the way. And on one side or the other, or, or the other people couldn't communicate well and somebody got hurt. Right. And I mentioned briefly some of those stories in the talk of 
Um, you know, an example, the anesthesiologist who came into a case as a colleague who told me the story uh, when he was a junior faculty, uh, and the, the surgeons had brought somebody up you know, quickly from the uh, emergency room. They were operating on a presumptive diagnosis, a diagnosis of sepsis. Anesthesiologist says, uh, this does not look like sepsis, uh, and this guy's an expert, and surgeons blew him off. It wasn't sepsis. This is not a good outcome. And the, the surgeon I talked to who said that there was a, uh, a surgeon who was an experienced guy, uh, has done cricothyrotides, nobody's doing, and here they are struggling with a difficult area, and he's trying to suggest, I think we need to do a crike, and they're not listening. Yep. And finally able to kind of break through, but pretty late in the game, they got right. lucky, things worked out all right. So it's a two-way street where the, and, and, and part of that's a relationship dysfunction. I can't prove it. I just know when they're not, there are lots of reasons why that happens. Right. But one is it's how much trust you have in the other person. If you really trust them, uh, you're going to listen to them. And they're the positive stories. So the flip side of this, of what I also talked about, and it's really critical, is some people will say, I have a great relationship with my surgeons. We don't have this. And as we were just talking about before, if you work in certain areas and you work with the same people, you probably stay there because you like the relationships and you don't have to be thrown into the general pool. Right. And those relationships really work well. And some people will say, we have a great relationship. You know, a surgeon calls me the night before and tells me what's going on. And if I see something, I can say something. And the surgeon, he or she will really listen to me. And it's terrific. And those are magic. And people know. If you have a good relationship with the surgeon and you walk in that day, you know your day is going to be a heck of a lot better. Absolutely. And if it's not, you're going to have a miserable day. Absolutely. So I can't prove to you the data. I just there are enough anecdotes uh, that almost everybody can have a story if you think about about right. how things went well or not. Right. And that's what I'm pushing for. But but further than that, just because when I talk to people about this, it resonates about what your work life is like, that if you can get beyond these stereotypes and the dysfunction it causes in the relationship or it's symptomatic of, it just will bring more joy and meaning to your life. You'll have better days because you can get beyond that. Oh, I think there's no question that this is also a well-being issue for sure. So as I said, this this all rings true, These these um, the feeling of... Um, often feeling a little bit intimidated to speak up. And I think we do know that when people, whether it's the anesthesiologist or the x-ray tech or the circulating nurse, are afraid to speak up, then there are outcomes that are yeah. worse. And so it just, I think, follows naturally that this relationship, if an anesthesiologist or, let's be honest, often it's an anesthesia resident or a CRNA yeah. who's in the room the majority of the time, if they are afraid to speak up because they think the surgeon is going to put them down or vice versa, if the surgeon, like you, the example you gave, is uh, there's something going on with the airway and the surgeon thinks, oh, well, that's not my thing, so I better, you know, I don't want them to mm -hmm. think I'm butting into their territory. Um, and then even simple things. So, you know, many, uh, we find many anesthesiologists and, and trainees are reluctant to ask the surgeon how much time they have left right. because they think that they're going to get snapped at, which does happen sometimes. And I think it's because the surgeon interprets that as, you know, you are rushing me or mm -hmm. you're, th you're implying I'm taking too long. Whereas often the anesthesia resident is just saying, I just want to know whether to give some more rocuronium or not. Right. 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 Um, and so that's tough. And on the flip side, you know, the surgeon is sometimes reluctant to ask us, you know, how many twitches are there? Because we always get up in arms yeah, about right, that. Right. You're in my business. Yeah. Right. We think that yeah, what they actually yeah. mean is you're not doing your job. Yeah, it's easy. I'll just tell me the story. When he went to put in an A-line, told the resident to put an A-line, the surgeon comes in the room and says, what's the matter? You think I'm going to lose a lot of blood? Right. And really took that as an insult. Right. Right. 
just dysfunctional communication, yeah. right? And dysfunctional relations. So again, I don't think it's just it, communication is a general term. I think that's this. It's about relationships. Yeah. And even though I'm an engineer, and you think I'd be more left brain, I think this the right brain stuff yeah. is really equally, if not more, critical. The culture issues are more critical when it comes to patient safety. Yeah. So I want to get to what you said about uh, you know small teams. In my experience, those are, are often the best functioning. So, mm-hmm. the, for example, uh, our cardiac anesthesiologists and cardiac surgeons get along great. And I think that's because there's relatively few on each side. And so they work together a lot. They know each other really well. They have uh, you know, social events together. Mm-hmm. They have uh, case yeah. conferences yeah. together. Um, and like you said, it may be that uh, you know, if you're in that – if you don't like being in that group, you get out. And you so out, you right. know, then it self-selects. So – should we be – I mean, even within the general OR, which is often where the, the large number of anesthesiologists and surgeons are, should we be trying to say, you know, we're going to have a, a small number of anesthesiologists who do, you know, ortho and another small number who do neuro and a small number who do, you know, hepatobiliary? Well, I'm reluctant. I don't have empirical evidence. I think there is some empirical evidence actually on both sides. Uh, from other domains of the value of form teams, that the ones that are put together versus the ones that work together all the time. So there are trade-offs to both. And it's a complicated story, so I can't go through all that. Sure. So I don't want to say that one's better than the other. I think the surgeons, I have a surgeon who said to me when he sees an administrator, he says, how about I give you a different secretary every day? Yeah. What would they be like? That's what it's like for me when I get a different whatever nurse or right. anesthesiologist. Right. Well, that makes sense. You can understand that. But if you want to run a business and you all have these small teams, then you don't have any flexibility. And if right. one person out is out, the team doesn't work, you have to slot somebody in who has no experience. So there are downsides to small teams. And you know, the airlines don't function that way. Right. The way they train is anybody can be in either one of those seats. They all know how to work together, and they have to learn CRM and uh, crisis resource management or, for them, cockpit resource management, learn how to work together with anybody who's in the other seat. Right. Uh, in an ideal world, yeah, it would be great if every day you work with the same people. Again, there are some downsides and that I won't get into, so it's not a perfect world because of that. Uh, but generally speaking, where it works well, it's because you know the people, you have a relationship, you know what they need, they know what you need, and you respect each other. So much of this is about trust and respect. Yeah, absolutely sounds right to me. Uh, so let's say, and, and I absolutely agree there are downsides. I mean, one very specific one I know anesthesiologists out there will recognize is that if, if we were to say, you know, we're going to have a group of five anesthesiologists who do all the ortho, well, then those anesthesiologists are going to lose their other skills. That's right. They can't do anything else. And then you, you yeah, that's right. the other set of problems. And that happens in a, a lot of places. So, right. again, that's a downside to it. All right. So if we're let's step away from that for a minute and say, okay, you know, we're not going to super subdivide the general OR population. Mm. So what are some approaches that we can take to try to improve this often dysfunctional relationship? Okay. Uh, One thing I point I did want to make, by the way, is people when I wrote about this or bring it up and I'm careful to make it clear. There are other dyads that are important, and the whole team is important, the relationships between all the individuals. And the surgeon nurse, anesthesiologist nurse, is another important dyad. I picked on this one because I – and I refer to the book by Diana McLean-Smith. Her more recent one is The Elephant in the Room about leadership dyads. And so I see those two as two physician leaders sometimes competing for the leadership role Mm -hmm. and why I think it's a more critical dyad that the other ones are – least as if not equally important but this was i think we need to focus more on dyads and teams and not just think of the whole team because the relationship between two people 
can be dysfunctional and really mess up the whole team. So I want to make that point clear. Interesting. Okay. So what I talked about in the paper and in the talk is a bunch of ideas of what people can try out. And I preface this by saying, again, I don't have any empirical evidence for how well any of these work. These are just general principles in relationship building anywhere in your life. And when you're not getting along with somebody, you can just take the position. Yeah, it's some people will say, well, yeah, I understand I have some role, but it's 90% them. There's nothing I can do. I can't change them. And then you go and you talk to your friends, and which happens with anesthesiologists, they just get together and they badmouth. Surgeons do some of that, but they don't care as much because I've talked to them. They just see more often anesthesiologists or CRNAs as somebody in that role, and they have their stereotypes. Uh, but they have other things that they gripe about. Mm. Whereas anesthesiologists, I just hear more griping about in that direction. And so what I say to people is you can only do what you can do. And here in the talk and in the paper, I gave about a – I added a couple in the talk – about a half a dozen different things to try out, yeah. to take some steps. You can live with this and gripe about it or you can try to do something about it. Yeah. And uh, uh, so a, a few of those – first of all, I think one of the easiest to, uh, to think about is take a surgeon to lunch. Develop personal relationships. And it doesn't have to be the most difficult surgeon you work with. Talk to surgeons you get along with, and, and you can do a focus group. You can say, well, here's this paper this guy wrote. Could you read this? Let's have a conversation about this because I'm trying to figure this out. I get along really well with you, maybe. Uh, you, know, you can start it that way and right. say, let's have a conversation. And if you want to take a step further, work with some surgeons and say, why don't we have a focus group? Why don't we go to dinner together, have six of us? We'll all read the paper and have a conversation and say, okay, well, what's going on here? Right. So that, to me, is like something that's really tangible and almost anybody anybody can do. Yeah. Uh, I suggest to people to do simulation and team training. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's accessible to most people now, but most, it's really hard to get surgeons and nurses there. There's not a lot of motivation. And within the Harvard-affiliated hospitals, we have a captive insurance company that gives a discount to the surgeons and the anesthesiologists, a substantial discount on their malpractice to do full team training with really? anesthesiologists, surgeons, nurses, uh, scrub techs. And every three years, the surgeons and the anesthesiologists all do uh, they ha- all do have to one full team training together in simulation. They have several scenarios debriefed together. And I suggest you want to make it long enough that you have to have a meal together, serve lunch together. Yeah. There's something about the meal. Uh, we did a whole study and published this a uh, few years back with the whole cardiac surgical team. And it's a long story and the challenges of doing that. But we uh, worked with a, a junior surgeon, a cardiac surgeon who uh, – who asked me to kind of help him with something. I say, let's let write a grant. Let's do this. And we got all the cardiac surgeons, the anesthesiologists and team all went through this team training together. Mm-hmm. We did focus groups. So I got to talk with the surgeons, anesthesiologists, the PAs, the pump techs. And it just changed the dynamic, especially for the pump techs, the PAs, uh, and the nurses, because it's like, wow, we're sitting together around the table. We never do that. Right. And it changed their, you know, started to really change the culture. We couldn't make it stick for various reasons because of the leadership and, uh, uh, that sort of thing. But I know it's doable, and I know it can be effective and impactful. So doing simulation together, if you can, and organizing that. Uh, and you don't have to do a full simulation. You can. I did these uh, one-hour in-situ simulations where I'd have a surgeon, anesthesiologist, resident, and I did a fire thing, and I, you know, just with a dead mannequin on the table, you know. Yeah. We didn't have to do the full-blown simulation. Right. Had them go through, what are you going to do if you have a small fire? And finally got them to think through, okay, you have to evacuate the room. Can you do it when you're on pump? And it got them to talk and, and about, you know, the things that were in common. Sure. So it, it's doable with a low-level fidelity simulation. You need some facilitation and you have to, you know, be able to pull it off. Right. But, but it's doable. Yeah. So those are a couple of ideas I, I, I talk about. Uh, 
adopting an attitude of being curious. And one of the slides I, I use is when you see something that a surgeon or anybody else for that matter is doing, and you're saying WTF, the F stands for frame. And what you should be thinking, what's their frame? Hmm. And I kind of joke, my wife's a psychotherapist, and so fortunately she's very forgiving of things I do. <laughs> uh, so, so over the years I've realized, you know, I might see her doing something, and what are you doing that for? And what I've learned over the years is, oh, that's interesting. What are you doing that for? Right. And I learned so much. Yeah, sometimes it's, yeah, it's like, oh, no, that's not the way to do it. But it's like, oh, I learned her thinking. It makes sense. It's just not the way I would do it. Right. And you'll find that with most people that's true. So if your mind's going to WTF, it's, yeah, go find out what their frame yeah. is and ask them and talk to them about it. Right. So approach uh, it with curiosity. Yeah, approach, approach it with curiosity. We teach that in simulation. That's the basics of debriefing. As mm-hmm. a debriefer, approach everything with curiosity. Never make assumptions about what the other person's thinking, why they did something. Mm-hmm. And there are great books to read, too. So I, the two that I suggested were Difficult Conversations, which people know about, yeah. and the other is Thanks for the Feedback. Mm. Uh, really wonderful book. Um, that that because uh, most when people teach think feedback, it's, they think it's about learning how to give feedback. What that book teaches is that the most critical part is how to receive feedback. If, if you can learn to receive feedback and take it in as a learning experience, you won't really care about how the other person gives it to you because you're realizing I don't care if they're nasty or mean and they're criticizing me. And yeah, I feel humiliated, but. What can I take from that, even if I totally disagree with them? Right. There's something. There There's something. And what yeah. can you learn about that? So, again, so there's some of the examples. Uh, another thing in simulation, by the way, we have this thing called the basic assumption that has to do with when you see people. Instead of you know, just tell yourself, well, even when you're seeing that lens of the stereotype, think, look, this person is smart. They care about what they're doing. They care about what their patients. They want to improve. They want a good outcome. And use that as your stereotype. And yes, sometimes they're wrong. That's wrong. The person's a jerk. But if you adopt that attitude and approach it that way, you start with the, the positive frame, even right. with the negative evidence you have. Right. Give people the benefit of the Give doubt. Give them the benefit of the doubt. And sure, people are going to say, oh, that's naive. You know, the world doesn't work that way. And I tell you, if you start living your life that way and you work on it, you won't be successful all the time. You're just not going to be. Right. But when you are, it really feels good. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. I, in fact, when we talk about you know, the relationship between attendings and residents, uh, I tell people the same thing. You know, um, you hear some some stereotypes there as well, right? The residents are lazy these days. Oh, the yeah, attendings right, don't, right. The attendings don't care about giving breaks. They, they just sit in the lounge. And I say, you know, get, start from a place of generosity and give people the benefit Great. of the doubt. Yeah, right and on. Assume that if that attending is sitting in the lounge, it's not because they don't want to give you a break. It's because they've got another case that's about to start any minute, and so they can't Great. give you a break. Perfect and if example. if you see that resident who, you know, that resident made a, a medical error, don't assume it's because they were being lazy or because they weren't paying attention. Assume it's because they're working really hard, and it happens to all of us, and they will make sure Perfect. not to do it again. And Absolutely. I think, you totally know, if you agree. can start from that place, you're yeah. going to be better off. We're doing uh, a couple of things also that have worked nicely and are very easy. So we did one. Uh, we have an ongoing project where we pair our, our junior residents, our CA1s, with a nursing team for a week. Oh, great. So they're with the same circulating nurse and the same tech for a week. And before that week starts, we have them exchange bios and pictures. So oh, a short wonderful. little paragraph bio and pictures. And it's been really fun. And it's transformed that relationship from a junior resident who doesn't know the nurses and is a little nervous and is you know afraid they're going to get great. blamed for something to they have this neat kind of relationship. Then they get to know the surgeons. They feel more comfortable speaking up. So that's been fun and has cost zero dollars. And then the other thing is uh, a couple of my residents are doing a neat project now where they're putting their name on their scrub cap with oh, a big piece of tape. Great, And great. I think, you know, 
and I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this, but I think that that is uh, calling people by their name as opposed Absol- to hey, anesthesia, anesthesia yeah. is really powerful. You know, I it makes totally people agree. feel more comfortable. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah, that's a real, it's one of the bugaboos for people in, the, in, in anesthesia that, hey, anesthesia. Right. And uh, so, get, you know, getting the surgeons to think that way, that I think it comes, again, from the relationship, building relationship. I mean, imagine a new surgeon comes into the practice, how nice it would be if there's a liaison from anesthesia that calls that surgeon up and say, hey, we'd like to take you to dinner and invite the person in and talk with them, make them feel at home, welcome what kind of difference that would be of establishing the, the culture and the welcoming of people. Yep. And they're easy things to do. I mean, that doesn't take a lot. I know everybody's busy, and they all say, oh, this stuff takes so much time. We don't. Well, some things don't take that much time, and right. you can do them. Absolutely. And one thing you mentioned in your article is you know, uh, some sort of a huddle or something, whether it's the night before or the morning of, so that the anesthesiologist and the surgeon are on the same page. I couldn't agree more. I email surgeons the night before every single time mm. I'm going to be in the OR with them. And I can't tell you how many times the next day they, they say, you know, I just want to thank you for reaching out. I, I don't know why that doesn't happen more often, but I love great. that you do it. Yep. And it takes me all of about, you know, one minute to compose an email, put a couple thoughts down, ask them if they have anything that they, oh, they're beautiful. worried about. Yeah, there you go. And I would you just encur- I'd encourage people to do that. I think yeah. that makes so, a big difference. So the last animation that I made was the way the world could be, which is a dialogue like that of the surgeon approaching the anesthesiologist. And, you know, and anyway, it's about a case that, uh, you know, this is the way it should be, having that kind of dialogue about a complicated patient and how you're going to handle it together. It makes a huge difference. Yeah. Um, well, that is great. Is there anything else you think uh, you want to share about this topic before we move on? Um, I'm not real. I think, I think there's enough there and there's enough in the paper. And what, what I, I, somebody had mentioned to me, I'd love to be able to uh, get the time to do, is to take those animations and then put them together with a little workbook and make that available so people who want to try things out, for instance, have a focus group or have a dialogue to take those three animations and have a workbook about how to use them. Yeah. And so I haven't quite figured out how to make them available. I could load, I could upload the, uh, all three of them on the YouTube. They'd be available. Sure. That would be easy. Uh, so I don't – yeah, the thing that bothers me is if I put the negative up one about surgeons, I don't want that to be up there as if I'm trying Promoting to – this surgeon – or dissing – Anesthesiologist. Right, so that's right. the problem I have. How can I make it available, but it would be used in a positive right. way? So I haven't figured that out yet. That's a trick. <laughs> well, if it ever gets up, we'll, uh, we'll definitely link to it. Um, so now is the part of our show then where we do random recommendations for oh. our audience. So I'll ask you if you have something, whether it's a book you've read recently, a movie you've seen, a restaurant you've been to, anything that you would recommend that folks check out. What do you think? Um, I have a wealth of things because I have, just so people know, I have a very, I'm semi-retired, so I, I'm having a lot of fun, and I've developed a lot of activities in my life the last uh, 20 years, and my wife and I spent a lot of time together playing, but there, so two things came to mind. One was the more, on the more serious end. Uh, I'm always reading a book, usually two, uh, nonfiction and fiction, uh, and I didn't come to that later in life. I know for residents, it's tough to even imagine. How can you read fiction yeah. or nonfiction when you have so much to do, but it really is enriching? Uh, and the book that I was thinking about mostly, it's, it's really, it's a political statement of what I'm about, but uh, Jill Lepore's um, These Truths, uh, History of, Amer- of, the, of America. It's a thousand-page book about the history of the U.S. Uh, it took me a couple months to read it. Wow. Uh, and, but it got me to understand why we, better why we are where we are, because it's not that new. It's, we've been, uh, this has been coming for 400 years, and this is how we got here. So that's a long recommendation, uh, uh, but if uh, you want to make a difference in America and understand where, where we are, this really helps. And the other is a totally different thing. My wife and I do tango. We oh, started nice. about eight years ago. We went to Argentina and 
because we do horseback riding too, and we were going to ride horses and decided, oh, we'd try tango in Buenos Aires, and we got hooked, and so we do a lot of tango. So if you're, again, you want to do something, it's, it's a lifelong pursuit, uh, but any kind of dancing, uh, if you can get involved in it, it's just a great, healthy, Have fun. fun thing to do. And especially if you can something you can find like that with your most critical thing, finding something with your spouse, significant other to do. And the earlier you do it and you have something together like that, it's just enriching and it's uh, just makes your relationship uh, so much more enriching and lasting and healthy, and it's oh, been great. That sounds fantastic. Uh, I, I wonder if there's an opportunity at ASA for a tango uh, event. Well, we actually did a big tango event really? at the National Patient Safety Foundation. Oh, I got nice. my instructors. Uh, we put on a big show, uh, and it was a show about using a tango uh, and, and connection and communication with patients and your and your team. And huh. we did it. It's a whole big – it was a play in tango. And, yeah, it was great. It was a plenary and it was a lot of fun, yeah. That is great. Well, great <laughs> recommendations. Um, I'm going to recommend a book. So I don't know if you've heard of this. It's called Let Me Heal, The Opportunity to Preserve Excellence in American Medicine. It's by Kenneth – and I'm sorry, I'm not going to pronounce his name right, I don't think. But it's Kenneth Ludmerer. Uh, and it is fascinating. It is a book about the history of graduate medical education in this country. So it starts back in the mid-1800s when there were no residencies mm-hmm. at all. There was no – that just didn't happen. You would go to medical school if you went. Sometimes you didn't go. You yep. just started practicing medicine. But if you went to medical school, you just graduated and then you started practice. And then at Johns Hopkins, uh, the first residency in the country was started. And so he talks about that and he talks about the people who went over to Europe and brought back actual – evidence-based medicine and brought it to this country and how that led to the medical school becoming part of universities and having a mission to not only learn the practice of medicine, but also to learn how to investigate and to produce real data to support what we were doing, and that that then led to uh, residencies. And there were interns and residents, and it spread quickly. And then uh, he talks about how it evolved into what it is today. Uh, it's a really fascinating story, and he writes it very, very well. So if you're interested Great. in knowing, especially for mm-hmm. those trainees out there, if you're interested in knowing about the history of how training became a part of our medical practice, check it out. It's a great book. All right, Dr. Cooper, thank you so much oh, for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. It's been a pleasure. Take care. All right, that was a lot of fun to be here with Dr. Cooper and not uh, just meeting him, but also here live at Anesthesiology. If you are, we're going to try to get this up right now while the conference is still ongoing. So if you are here at the conference, come by and say hi uh, and let us know what you thought about the episode. You can also, of course, go to the website at ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C.com where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from whatever you have to say. You can also join the conversation on Twitter by following at ACRAC Podcast. You can follow me at at Jay Wolpaw. That's J-W-O-L-P-A-W. And of course, you can also join the Facebook group. It's the ACRAC Facebook group where you can join the conversation as well. If you haven't already, or even if you haven't, it's been a little while, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. And, of course, if you're interested in supporting the making of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can, of course, also make a donation anytime at paypal.me slash ACRAC. Thank you so much to those who are already patrons and have already already made donations. It makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. Big thanks, as always, to Kimia Kashkuli, our fantastic intern, and to Brian Park, who makes outlines for some of the shows. Our original ACRAC music is by the one and only Dr. Dennis Quo. Check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. Thanks for listening. 
For Dr. Jeffrey Cooper and the ACRAC Podcast, live at Anesthesiology 2019, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's spring like in Park City, Utah? Imagine waking up on a bluebird day to ski the greatest snow on earth at two world-class resorts, Park City Mountain and Deer Valley. Exploring miles of wide open spaces by snowshoe or cross-country skis. Wandering our historic Main Street with its opera ski scene and award-winning restaurants. When you love it like we love it, Park City, Utah will always be winter's favorite town. Join the experience at visitparkcity.com.